Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, sports fans, and welcome to this week's edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I'm back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history, and I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to hear what's going on. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you're here here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. On today's show, we'll talk about the NFL Hall of Fame, yet more specifically members of the Hall of Fame that came from historically black colleges and universities. With the additions of Donnie Schell, Harold Carmichael, and Winston Hill, the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, now has a total of 34 players that hail from historical black colleges and universities, and we will highlight those talented individuals and their exploits on the field. Also this week will be the top five. The top five history-making performances and events that celebrated anniversaries this week, as well as a shout-out going out to the scandal in baseball history that nearly destroyed the national pastime in the early part of the 20th century. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. And you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast from the Sports History Network. Welcome back to the show, and I'm your host, Dana Augusta, and this week's main event takes us to Canton, Ohio, where the newest members of the NFL Hall of Fame were enshrined. Three players entered the Hall of Fame that came from historical black colleges and universities, including Southern University's Harold Carmichael, South Carolina State's Donnie Shell, and Texas Southern's Winston Hill. A total of 34 Hall of Famers hail from historical black colleges and universities and are part of the NFL and part of the Hall of Fame from 17 different schools. Now, leading the way with a total of five players in the Hall 
is, of course, Grambling State University. And each one of the players enshrined in Canton was coached in college by the legendary Eddie Robinson. Coming from Grambling State University was defensive back Willie Brown, played for the Denver Broncos and the Oakland Raiders. He played 18 years in the NFL, beginning with the Broncos in 1963. He is the one that perfected the the art of the bump and run coverage and carried that skill to the Oakland Raiders in 1967, leading their defense to their first and only title in, an, in the American Football League and an appearance in Super Bowl II. Brown was a nine-time Pro Bowl selection and five-time first-team All-Pro with 54 career interceptions, one of them in Super Bowl XI, which he scored to ice the Raiders' first Super Bowl win. Another former Tiger that was a part of the AFL was Buck Buchanan, a defensive tackle from the Kansas City Chiefs. He was the first African-American in pro football history to be drafted number one in overall in either the NFL or AFL. This eight-time All-Pro and four-time first-team All-Pro defensive tackle recorded 70 quarterback sacks and was one of the centerpieces of the Chiefs' defense that shut down the Minnesota Vikings' vaunted offense in Super Bowl IV, the Chiefs' first Super Bowl victory. Willie Davis, defensive end of the Cleveland Browns and the Green Bay Packers. Now, he began his career with Paul Brown of the Cleveland Browns, but became an NFL legend as a defensive captain of the Vince Lombardi coach Green Bay Packers of the 1960s. In his 12-year NFL career, Davis was named to to the Pro Bowl five times and was voted first-team All-Pro five times and recorded a shade under 100 sacks in his long career. Charlie Joyner was a wide receiver for the Houston Oilers, Cincinnati Bengals, and San Diego Chargers. Now, for the first part of his career, Joyner was just an average receiver with above-average speed for slightly below-average teams. However, his career took a dramatic turn upward in 1976 when he arrived in San Diego. With Dan Fouts at quarterback and the arrival of Don Coriolis as head coach in 1978, the little receiver from Louisiana became one of the best receivers ever and the cornerstone of one of the most prolific offenses in NFL history. He finished his career with 750 receptions, with 12,146 yards and 65 touchdowns in his 19 seasons in the National Football League. And finally, Tank Younger played for the Los Angeles Rams and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Playing most of his career with the Rams, he was the first player from Grambling State University to make it to the NFL, and he didn't disappoint. In his 10-year pro career at fullback, Younger games. 3,640 yards and scored 34 touchdowns for an offensively explosive Rams team in the 1950s, winning the NFL championship in 1951. The next school on our list is Jackson State University. The Tigers had four players that are currently enshrined in the National Football League Hall of Fame. The first one is Lem Barney, cornerback of the Detroit Lions. He was drafted by the Lions in 1967, and this Hall of Fame defensive back had a pick six in his first game of his career, victimizing the great John Unitas. And over the next, over the next 11 seasons, Lim Barney was a fixture at defensive back for the Lions. He, twice, he was twice voted first-team All-Pro and reached the Pro Bowl a, a seven times. 
In 140 games in Detroit, he compiled 56 interceptions and scored seven touchdowns. He was known as Dr. Doom. We're talking about Robert Brazil, a linebacker of the, of the Houston Oilers. He played his whole career with the Oilers as an outside linebacker. He came into the Oilers in 1975. He was leader of a defense during the quote-unquote love your blue era in Houston, leading the Oilers to back-to-back appearances in the AFC Championship game in the late 1970s. This seven-time Pro Bowl linebacker and two-time All-Pro finished with 48 sacks in 147 games for the Oilers. He was simply known as Sweetness, and of course, we're talking about the great, late great Walter Payton, running back of the Chicago Bears, who was also a Jackson State alum. He was, of course, simply known as Sweetness, the NFL's all-time rushing leader. Walter Payton may have been the most complete football player the NFL had ever seen. He could do everything well. After a 13-year career in Chicago, he finished as the all-time leading rusher in the league with 16,726 yards from scrimmage and scoring 110 touchdowns. And during his career, Peyton was a nine-time Pro Bowl selection and five-time All-Pro and a Super Bowl champion. Rounding out the Tigers quartet is Jackie Slater, offensive lineman for the Los Angeles Rams. Slater was one of the most durable offensive linemen to play the game in a position that rarely gets the spotlight. But Slater was definitely a star for the Rams teams for 20 seasons. His career beginning in 1976, Slater would be a seven-time Pro Bowl selection and the person Eric Dickerson ran behind on his way becoming the record holder for most yards rushing in a season, a mark that he set back in 1984. The next school on our list is Morgan State University. The Bears also had four players that are currently enshrined in Canton. The first one is Roosevelt Brown, who was was an offensive tackle for the New York Giants. He played his entire career in New York, and Brown's career began in 1953 and was a fixture along the offensive line in New York for 13 seasons. And during that time, Brown was a nine-time Pro Bowl selection and a six-time first-team All-Pro. Another another lineman that came from Morgan State was Lynn Ford, who played defensive end for the Los Angeles Dons, the Cleveland Browns, and the Green Bay Packers. Now, if the name the Los Angeles Dons doesn't really ring a bell, that because they played in the All-American Football Conference in the late 1940s, which is where Lynn Ford began his career. He played both offense and defense and later moved on to Paul Brown and the Cleveland Browns where he spent a bulk of his career. On offense, he played end, and on defense, he was the Browns' defensive end. And Ford was named to four Pro Bowls and four All-Pro teams. Another Morgan State Bear was Leroy Kelly. Now, it is always hard to replace a legend, and Leroy Kelly was given the unenviable task of replacing Jim Brown at running back for the Cleveland Browns. In his 10-year career, he was a six-time Pro Bowl selection and three-time All-Pro, and he played his entire career in Cleveland and finished with 7,274 rushing yards and 74 touchdowns. And rounding out this quartet from Morgan State is the great Willie Lanier, linebacker of the Kansas City Chiefs. 
He was the first black middle linebacker in pro football, and he led the Chiefs' defense with toughness and physicality along with style and intelligence. In his 11 seasons with the Chiefs, he was the eight-time Pro Bowl selection, three-time All-Pro, and was defensive play caller for the Chiefs in their upset win of the Vikings in Super Bowl IV. Moving on now to South Carolina State University, the Bulldogs have three players that were inducted into, I'm, I'm sorry, four players that were inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The first one, Harry Carson, linebacker of the New York Giants. Harry Carson was the star linebacker of the team before Lawrence Taylor got there, but he was no less formidable than his counterpart. Carson was a defensive leader of a team that dominated the NFL and in 1986, leading the Giants to their first Super Bowl win against the Denver Broncos and John Elway in Super Bowl XXI. Carson played his entire career with the Giants, collecting nine Pro Bowl appearances in 13 seasons. Another South Carolina Bulldog was David Deacon Jones, who was a defensive end for the Rams, the Chargers, and the Redskins. Known as the Secretary of Defense, Deacon Jones was the cornerstone of the fierce and foursome defense in Los Angeles in the late 1960s. He is credited with coming up with the term sack, and he was one of the most feared defensive ends ever with his trademark head slap, which is now outlawed by the National Football League. He was an eight-time Pro Bowl selection and five-time All-Pro. Another South Carolina State University alum was Marion Motley, who is now in the Hall of Fame. He was a fullback for the Cleveland Browns and the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he was the first black power running back in pro football, joining the Cleveland Browns in 1946, where they're still part of the All-American Football Conference. In 105 career games, Motley scored 31 touchdowns and was all first-team All-Pro twice. And the most recent South Carolina Bulldog to be enshrined in Canton, Ohio, is Donnie Shell cornerback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. One of the newest members of the Hall is Shell from and played his entire career with the Steelers, which lasted 14 seasons. Shell was a dominant part of the Steel Curtain defense of the 1970s, and he finished with 51 interceptions in 201 games and was named to the Pro Bowl five times and three times an All-Pro. Another so, uh, un another university that is known for having great football and uh, historical black college, and which is also my alma mater, which is, of course, Southern University. Mel Blunt of the Pittsburgh Steelers hailed from the school from Baton Rouge. He was Donnie Shell's teammate with the Steelers and fellow defensive back from Southern University. Blunt was named to the Pro Bowl five times and was twice named All-Pro. His 57 interceptions in 200 games in his career made him one of the most feared defensive backs during his 15-year career. Another Southern University Jaguar that was just recently enshrined into the hall is Harold Carmichael. It was a long time coming for this angular wide receiver from the Philadelphia Eagles. Standing at six foot eight. Harold Carmichael was the favorite target of Ron Jaworski in the late 1970s and early 80s. He had 590 receptions with 8,985 yards and 79 touchdowns in his 14-year career. 
Carmichael was named to four Pro Bowls and was named to the All's 1970s team at wide receiver. And rounding out the trio from Southern University is Aeneas Williams, defensive back of the Arizona Cardinals and the St. Louis Rams. Coupling speed and toughness, this native of New Orleans starred with the Cardinals and Rams during the 1990s and early 2000s. He was an eight-time Pro Bowl selection with three-time All-Pro picks. During his career of 14 years, Aeneas Williams had 55 interceptions and 211 games and had nine defensive touchdowns. <laughs> the next historical black college and university that's on our list is Tennessee State. The Tigers featured Richard Dent, defensive end of the Chicago Bears, 49ers, the Colts, and the Eagles. He was named Super Bowl XX's most valuable player, making Dent the first player from a historical black college or university to be named the most valuable player of a Super Bowl. This dominating defensive end for the 1985 Chicago Bears was the cornerstone of one of the most devastating defenses the NFL had seen, and it compi compiled a grand total of 137.5 sacks during his career and was named to the Pro Bowl four times. The other Tennessee State Tiger is Claude Humphrey, another defensive end. He played for the Atlanta Falcons and the Philadelphia Eagles. As one of the first stars of the Atlanta Falcons and the anchor of the famous Grits Blitz defense, Claude Humphrey was one of the most relentless defensive ends ever with 130 sacks in a 13-year pro career. As a member of both the Falcons and the Eagles, Humphrey was a six-time pro bowler and two-time all-pro. Another school that has a couple of Hall of Famers is Texas Southern University. The Tigers are represented by Michael Strahan, defensive end of the New York Giants. Today, Michael Strahan is one of the most recognizable faces on television, being on a number of programs across the dial. Yet, when he came, to, when he came into the league in 1993 from Texas Southern in the second round, he was a relative unknown. Yet, that didn't stay long. Strahan tallied 141 and a half sacks along with a number of individual honors including seven Pro Bowl appearances, four-time All-Pro, and Defensive Player of the Year in 2001. His biggest and most prized accomplishment took place in the final game of his career winning Super Bowl championship in Super Bowl 46 and Super Bowl 43 in Glendale, Arizona against the New England Patriots. I'm sorry, Super Bowl 42, that's right. Next on the list is Texas Southern's Winston Hill, who just recently was inducted into the Hall. He was another New York lineman, but this time he was with the New York Jets. Winston Hill played 14 years with the Jets and protected Joe Namath en route to their win in Super Bowl III. In his 15-year career with the Jets and the Rams, Hill was named to eight Pro Bowls in his from his offensive tackle position. There's only one person from Mississippi Valley State that's in the Hall of Fame, and what a player he was. And we're talking, of course, about wide receiver Jerry Rice of the San Francisco 49ers. He also played for the Oakland Raiders and the Seattle Seahawks. During his career, he was known as Flash 80. Now, post-career, he simply is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. He is by far the best receiver ever to play the game but has a serious, but a serious argument could be made that he's the greatest player the league has ever seen. Coming out of tiny Mississippi Valley State from Itabina, Mississippi, 
He was already one of the most prolific receivers ever on a high-flying offense led by Archie Cooley's coaching and quarterback Willie Totten. He was paired perfectly with Joe Montana with the 49ers, and together they became one of the greatest dynasties the league had ever seen. During his career, which lasted 20 seasons, Rice was elected to 13 Pro Bowls, first-team All-Pro 10 times, a member of the All-80s and All-90s team, and 1987 and 1993 Offensive Player of the Year with the 49ers, and oh, by the way, Most Valuable Player of Super Bowl 23. Alabama A&M is represented in Canton by John Stallworth, wide receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Stallworth was selected by the Pittsburgh Steelers during their famous 1974 NFL draft and paid dividends right away as, as the perfect complement to Lynn Swan during the remainder of the 1970s, leading them to four Super Bowl championships. Stallworth compiled 8,723 yards on 537 receptions and 63 touchdowns during his 14-year career, all of them with the Steelers. Bethune-Cookman out of Tallahassee, Florida, produced Larry Little, offensive lineman of the Chargers and the Miami Dolphins, most notably with with the Dolphins. Larry Little is the only one on this list to be a member of a team that actually went undefeated. And he was an important member of that outstanding offensive line that dominated the trenches for Don Shula in the early 1970s. Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, ran behind him on both power runs and sweeps, displaying his impressive athleticism. He was a member of the NFL All-Decade team of the 1970s, along with five Pro Bowl and first-team All-Pro selective, respectively. Tiny Bishop College produced Emmett Thomas, defensive back of the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, this small HBCU located in Marshall, Texas, just outside of Dallas, produced several NFL players that started in the 60s and 70s. But the one drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in 1966 went on not only to become one of the best defensive backs ever, but has become an NFL lifer whose playing and coaching career has spanned now seven decades. In his 12-year playing career, Emmett Thomas was a five-time Pro Bowl selection, two-time AFL champion, and was the first-team All-Pro selection once totaling 58 interceptions and returning five of them for scores. The Rattlers of Florida A&M University produced Bob Hayes, wide receiver of the Dallas Cowboys and later the San Francisco 49ers. Known as the world's fastest human, a moniker that, earned him, that he earned after winning the gold medal at the Tokyo Olympic Games in 1964, Bob Hayes broke away his breakaway speed in the open field was something to behold as a fan, but, as, but was the stuff of nightmares for opposing defensive backs. In his 11-year pro career, Hayes scored 71 touchdowns and totaled 7,414 receiving yards. And he was voted to the Pro Bowl three times and was twice named to the first team All-Pro team. Right here in Georgia is Fort Valley State University Wildcats. And they produce Hall of Famer Rayfield Wright, offensive lineman of the Dallas Cowboys. Now coming from tiny Fort Valley State here in Georgia, Rayfield Wright was drafted in the seventh round in the 1967 NFL Draft. 
And during that time with the Cowboys, he granted protection to Don Meredith, to Craig Morton, and to Roger Staubach, and opened holes for guys like Ray Perkins, to Dwayne Thomas, to Tony Dorsett. Wright was named to six Pro Bowls and three All-Pro teams during his 13-year career. Going up to the Northeast, there's Maryland Eastern Shore University Hawks, and they produce Art Shell of the Oakland Raiders. Now, when he was drafted out of Maryland Eastern Shore, in 1968, he was looked upon as the answer to the Chiefs' Buck Buchanan, who was terrorizing offenses of the AFL. Of, a, of the AFL. Now, Shell was a massive six foot five, 265 pound athletic offensive lineman that gave Buchanan a worthy adversary in the trenches. Yet his most, most impressive performance came in Super Bowl XI, when he shut out Jim Marshall, not allowing, not allowing the great Viking defensive end to register a single tackle during that game. In his 15 seasons in the silver and black, Shell was voted to two All-Pro teams and eight Pro Bowls. North Carolina State, North Carolina a and the Aggies produced Elvin Bethay, offensive lineman of the Houston Oilers. Another offensive lineman with roots in the AFL was Elvin Bethay. And this offensive lineman opened holes for Earl Campbell and offered Dan Pastorini protection during the heyday of the Love Your Blue phenomenon in Houston. Bethay played 16 seasons and all of them in Houston and was named to eight Pro Bowls during that time. Prairie View A&M out of Texas, the Panthers produced Ken Houston, defensive back of the Houston Oilers and the Washington Redskins. Now, speaking of the Oilers... They drafted, he drafted, he was drafted to the Oilers one year ahead of Elvin Bethay and was one of the best and one of the smoothest defensive backs in the 1960s and 70s. Houston starred with both the Oilers and the Redskins during his impressive 14-year career. And over the years, Houston compiled 49 interceptions and returned nine of them for touchdowns. And he was named to the All-1970s team and was voted to the Pro Bowl 12 times and twice named First Team All-Pro. And finally, the last school on our list is Savannah State University. And, of course, we're talking about tight end Shannon Sharp of the Denver Broncos and the Baltimore Ravens. Now, when he came into the league in 1990, he was just simply known as Sterling Sharp's younger brother. Yet, as a member of the Broncos, he became one of John Elway's favorite targets and became a force from the tight end position and became a multiple Super Bowl champion, winning two with the Broncos and one with the Baltimore Ravens. Shannon Sharp gained 10,060 yards receiving with 62 touchdowns. To go along with that, Sharp was an eight-time Pro Bowl selection, four-time All-Pro, and a member of the All-Decade team of the 1990s. All of these men are Hall of Famers and had major contributions to the NFL with their talents, and all of them got their start from historically black colleges and universities. That was this week's main event, and now coming up next is this week's Top 5.
Hello and welcome back to the show and before we get on with the rest of the program, one sign that we're growing here at the Historically Speaking Sports and the Sports History Network is now we have a sponsor and that is newspapers.com. Now if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a serious sports fan like myself and if you are into sports history, you really do need to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, from Canada, England, Scotland, Ireland, and more dating back from the year 1798 to yesterday. Get a one-week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting the sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That is sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also, please check out our Twitter feed at historicallysp2 for your daily dose of sports history. Also, you could drop us a line or two at our email at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes every week. Once again, I'm Dana Augusta, and if you're new to the program, this is what we call the Top 5. The Top 5 events and the annals of sports history that celebrated anniversaries this past week. And today, we're highlighting the events that took place between the dates of August 8th to August 14th. So now, let's get right to it. Number five, NBA Hall of Famer Dave DeBusher pitches a shutout. Now, there have been several players that have played multiple sports in their careers. Of course, there was Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders in the 1970s, and there was also future NBA Hall of Famer John Havlicek, who, before joining the Celtics, once had a tryout with the Cleveland Browns and actually played a couple games as a receiver coming out of Ohio State. But on August 13, 1963, another future NBA Hall of Famer had a moment in the sun and not for the sport that he's best known for. Dave DeBusher, a rookie pitcher for the Chicago White Sox, tosses a complete game shutout over the Cleveland Indians, winning 3-0 at Comiskey Park. And of course, DeBusher would later be one of the important pieces of the championship Knicks teams in the early 1970s, winning two NBA titles playing power, playing power forward. Speaking of basketball, is number four. The Dream Team strikes gold in Barcelona. Now, it was in retaliation of Team USA earning a bronze medal in the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea. It was their lowest finish in the Olympic competition and almost a national embarrassment. And, but for the first time, NBA players were allowed to participate in the basketball competition in the Summer Olympic Games in 1992 in Barcelona, Spain. On August the 8th, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and the rest of the very familiar names of the NBA led Team USA to the gold medal against other NBA players that played for Croatia most notably Tony Kuko, Dino Raja, and Drazen Petrovic. Behind Jordan's 22 points and Charles Barkley's 17 points, Team USA claimed the gold medal with a score of 117-85. It was a tour de force performance by the team dubbed the Dream Team, winning each game by an average of an incredible 44 points per game. Number 3. 
Satchel Paige pitches a shout out in the majors and is elected to the Hall of Fame. Now when you talk about Negro League Baseball, the first name that always, always comes up is Leroy Satchel Paige of the Kansas City Monarchs and other teams. It is reported that he won nearly 2,500 games in his career and is regarded as one of the greatest pitchers in baseball history. And he would finally get a chance to pitch in the majors in 1948 with the Cleveland Indians, who he would help lead to their first World Series since 1920. On August 13, 1948, against American League rival Chicago White Sox, Satchel Paige pitched a complete game shutout winning 5-0 at Cleveland Municipal Stadium, allowing just five hits in the game. 23 years later, Paige would add one more honor to his long historic career. On August 9, 1971, Paige became the first Negro League star to be inducted into Baseball's Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Number 2. The Green Bay Packers are founded. Now, the Green Bay Packers are one of the most storied and most revered franchises in all of pro sports, not just in the NFL. And every part of this franchise, from their iconic uniforms to their legendary home, speaks to NFL tradition, greatness, and mystique. Yet the Packers had a very humble beginning. On August 11, 1919, the Acme Packing Company of Green Bay began sponsoring a semi-pro football team which became the Packers that we know of today. The team was established by George Calhoun and future NFL Hall of Fame player and coach Curly Lambeau. For the next 100 plus years, the team that is located in the NFL's smallest market and has shareholders instead of a single owner has become a franchise that is synonymous with football here in the United States. And the number one anniversary, the number one thing that took place this past week in sports history was the infamous baseball strike of 1994. Now it was the eighth work stoppage in the history of Major League Baseball, yet it was its most damaging. How damaging? Well, in all, 948 games were canceled, including the World Series. The first time in 90 years there would have been there would be no World Series. The reason for the 1994 strike was team owners wanted a salary cap because they felt because of small market clubs wouldn't be able to compete with the larger, more wealthier teams unless teams agreed to share local broadcasting revenues. Now the players were adamantly opposed to a salary cap and the players went on strike on August 12th of 1994 with the Montreal Expos having the best season in the history of the franchise despite having the second lowest payroll in all of Major League Baseball. The strike would last until April 2, 1995, the day before the season was, was scheduled to begin, and the strike actually lasted for 232 days. As part of the terms, the players and owners were bound to the terms of the expired collective bargaining agreement until a new one could have been reached at the start of the season, and the start of the season, I should say, would be postponed for three weeks, with teams playing an abbreviated 144-game season instead of the usual 162. And that concludes this week's Top 5. And speaking of Major League Baseball Survivor controversy, coming up next, we'll send a shout-out to the 100th anniversary of a scandal that nearly destroyed the national pastime. A scandal 
that born eight players from ever playing Major League Baseball. Coming up right after this short break. Welcome back, sports fans, and this is the final segment of our show here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, and this is what we call this week's shout-out. And this one, we're going to go back, we're going to go way back, we're going to go back 100 years ago to the resolution of a scandal that rocked the game of baseball right down to its core. In August of 1921... Major League Baseball Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis, newly appointed by team owners who was once a federal judge, banned eight players from the Chicago White Sox that allegedly conspired to throw the 1919 World Series. The 1919 World Series was between the Chicago White Sox of the American League, who were heavily favored to beat the National League Cincinnati Reds, playing in their very first World Series. The White Sox, though a power in the American League, was one of the worst paid teams in all of baseball because of their miserly owner, Charles Comiskey. During the 1917 World Series, when the White Sox won their second World Series, Comiskey used the money that team earned as their World Series bonus to launder their uniforms. In protest the next season, the team refused to launder their uniforms and the sports writers in Chicago, as well as around the American League, began to call them the Black Sox. Now, entering the series in 1919, Sox first baseman Chick Gandel talked several players into throwing the World Series if the money was right. And the money was actually was right because of underworld kingpin Arnold Rothstein of New York. Now, including Gandal were fellow conspirators Claude Lefty Williams, Oscar Happy Felsch, Buck Weaver, Sweet Risberg, Eddie Sacati, Fred McMullen, and the team star outfielder Shoeless Joe Jackson. That year, for the first time, the World Series would be the best of nine-game contests instead of the standard seven-game series to boost gate receipts. Now, the Cincinnati Reds won the first two games in Cincinnati, yet the Sox made several uncharacteristic defensive mistakes in the game to give the Reds their opening. Now, the Sox would win game three behind the pitching of Dickie Kerr, who wasn't even in in on the fix, and he tossed a three-hit shutout to give the Sox their first win in the series. Now, in games four and five, Cincinnati extended their lead to four games to one with several questionable plays by the Sox in the field. 
And there were rumors floating around that the Sox were paid off to lose the series, but was looked upon by the general public as just that, just simply a rumor. Now, the problem, there was a problem that arose for the Sox as the series continued because the Sox began to rebel because the players that were involved in the fix realized that they were not getting paid as much as they were promised, and some of them not at all. And so Chicago began to rally in their in their rebellion, began to rally in the series, takes game, taking game six and seven in dramatic fashion. However, the night before the eighth game of the series, gamblers threatened the next day starting pitcher Lefty Williams, saying that it would harm his wife if he didn't cooperate with the gamblers and ultimately Rothstein. And in that game, Williams allowed four runs in the first inning, which led the Reds to taking the series and their first world championship five games to three. It wasn't until almost a year later that American League President Van Johnson launched an investigation into the allegation that the series was crooked. Pitcher Eddie Sicotti and Jackson eventually confessed to a grand jury in the spring of 1921, yet the court transcripts mysteriously disappeared, and eventually the grand jury acquitted all eight conspirators for lack of evidence, yet the stain of the scandal was still there, especially in the minds of a lot of baseball fans around the country. In August of 1921, 100 years ago, Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis took the unprecedented step of banning all eight conspirators for life. None of them ever played Major League Baseball again, including Shoeless Joe Jackson. He, that, stuff, that story was the subject of the subject of the Black Sox scandal is the subject of several documentaries and feature films such as Field of Dreams and Eight Men Out. For the White Sox, it took them 40 years just to return to the Fall Classic and another 46 years to finally win a World Series, breaking the so-called curse of the Black Sox. In 2005, the Sox swept the Houston Astros to win their long-awaited World Series. And that was this week's Historically Speaking Sports shout-out. Fans, thank you for joining us in this edition of the podcast. And remember to subscribe to this podcast and others located here on the Sports History Network. And also check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2. And until next time, so long. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football, 
Through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians, you'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.